Good morning and welcome to The Skinny for today, Friday, September 1st. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Mitch Perry, senior reporter with the Florida Phoenix, joined by my colleague, Ben Montgomery. Good morning, Ben. Hi, good morning, Mitch. How are you? Good, good. Although I'm going to have to change my headphones here in a second because I can't hear a darn thing through how, here. Anyway, how, how is it, Mitch, that we do this every week? <laughs> every well, week. I want to wish our listeners, a, thank you so much for tuning in to us. Uh, welcome to the Labor, Labor Day weekend. And hopefully you all survived the power and intensity of Hurricane Adalia. Uh, no, not, it did not, of course, hit Tampa Bay directly. Uh, unfortunately, it did nail our friends up the coast, to the nature coast. We'll definitely be talking about that later in the program. But first, we want to bring on our guest, uh, Congressman Maxwell Frost. Uh, now, depending on your interest in Washington and Florida politics, you may have heard of him as he's been the subject of dozens, if not uh, 100 articles since he's been elected last fall to represent the people of Western Orlando and other local cities in Florida's 10th Congressional District at the young age of 25, making him the first Gen Z member of Congress. Uh, he's 26 years old now and trying to make his mark in Washington. He's also the first Afro-Cuban elected to Washington. Congressman Maxwell Frost, welcome to The Skinny here on WMNF. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Great to have you here with us, uh, Congressman Frost. So, you know, you're still in the August break. I think you're going back to Washington the next couple of weeks, but you've, it's been a, a long summer break for members of Congress. And this is the time when I know members of Congress take foreign trips. And you did that earlier this month when you traveled to South America, specifically Chile, Brazil, and Colombia. You went with New York representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Nydia Valaquez, uh, Joaquin Castro and Greg Cesar of Texas, and Misty Rebic, uh, Bernie Sanders' chief of staff. I'm sure there were a lot of things you learned and important people you spoke to, but if you could in some way encapsulate that, what were some of the biggest things that you took away from that visit that you can bring to your work uh, back to Washington, D.C.? Yeah, well, I appreciate you all having me on. I'd say two things. You know, before the trip, I really wanted to ensure that I was able to draw direct to local impact because that's very important to me. Um, and very important to the work that we do here. And so prior to the trip, I actually met with um, local leaders here in Central Florida that um, are Colombian, uh, Central Florida, Brazilian community and the Chilean community and was able to learn a lot about their hopes and dreams here locally and how it connects to what's going on in their um, home countries. Um, and we also met with Visit Orlando, um, different folks to figure, talk about tourism. Um, Brazil was our first country, um, the, the, the place that Brazilians visit the most in the world outside of Brazil is Orlando, Florida. And so we had great conversations with the embassy and with the government there about how we can continue to, to help each other and make sure that we have that good tourism going on. And I also was very interested in how these new anti-immigrant laws in the state of Florida have been impacting businesses here locally, and it has had a dramatic impact, um, unfortunately. And so tourism and, and a lot of these folks coming to Central Florida was a big topic of conversation. The second thing, which was really the purpose of the trip, which it was to go to these newly installed progressive governments in South America. And, you know, the United States has kind of a dark history in South America and Latin America, one of, of exploiting resources, of interventionalism, of, you know, giving a, a pass and, and sometimes helping very right wing authoritarian leaders. And so part of this trip was to help amend, learn, <clears throat> heal and figure out how can we as the Americas move forward on a foreign policy that's based on um, shared values, democracy, and the climate crisis. And I'll tell you, being in Brazil and getting to meet some of the um, high elected officials there, high ranking elected officials and members of Congress, you know, we went to the presidential palace where on January 8th, 
um, they had an insurrection like we did, an almost insurrection uh, right. and riots on, on, on the Capitol. And, you know, when we were speaking with those high-ranking Brazilian officials, they were talking about how America's soft power and the way that we influence the world um, is real. And, you know, there were so many, so many parallels between their, um, you know, almost insurrection and ours. Um, and we just learned so much about our shared value as, uh, you know, people who want to push pro-democracy uh, policies and learn so much about that. So it was really an amazing trip with direct impact here in Central Florida, but also taking a step back and looking at us as the Americas, how we can work together with the climate crisis. What are the lessons learned about progressive governments in uh, Latin America and how can we support each other um, you know, as we move uh, forward? Do you think that in, do you think that involves a, 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 a truth and reconciliation type process in South America? Should we first understand collectively the truth of America's involvement, uh, clandestine and otherwise, in in South America politics? I, I do, I do, and and it's really important. You know, every we met with uh, the president of Chile, we met with. Uh, the vice, I met with the vice president of Colombia. I had to leave the trip a little early. I was not able to meet President Petro, but the rest of the folks did. We met with all the embassies. That was the first thing we did in each country. And we heard great things about from each head of state um, about their relationship with President Biden and how, you know, President uh, Biden's administration and how the ambassadors have really changed the tone of how the United States is uh, engaging with these countries, which is great. However, um, rightfully so. There's, you know, they brought up that there's still a lot of healing to do, and I think that's right. There is a lot of reconciliation and being honest about our past that still needs to happen. You know, when we were in Chile, we're, we're coming up. I think it's September 11th is the 50th anniversary of the violent uh, military coup. Uh, where Pinochet uh, took over the government and had a violent dictatorship for 17 years. Um, it's reported and, you know, widely believed that the United States had a, had a role in that in that coup. And uh, a direct ask that the president had for us was to help encourage the administration to help declassify some of the documents um, that the United States has in relation to the in relation to the coup. And they said explicitly, you know, they said this isn't about villainizing America. This is about us learning the true history of our country, how America has interacted and how we can heal from a violent right wing uh, authoritarian coup that, you know, killed and imprisoned so many people. How do we move forward from that if we don't have all the information? It even gets down to the point where there's certain classified documents that we have that might help families find where their relatives are buried and things like that. And so shortly after the trip, um, the, uh, the 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 uh, administration announced that they were going to declassify several of the documents that Chile has been asking for. And so what we found is not, you know, none, none of these folks were adversarial towards our country. They just really want us to lean into that reconciliation and healing um, and working together to figure out what do the next, you know, 50 years look like. But we do have to talk about the past 50 years. And I think that's important. It doesn't take away from from us as a country, but it just helps us all heal and learn about how we can truly move together as the Americas, because South America has been neglected for a long time in terms of foreign policy. It doesn't really get spoken about. There's multiple ambassadorships that are vacant right now, including Colombia, which is a, a you know a very close country to us. Um, and so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But I, I agree that healing, it, it needs to be the first step here. 
Let's talk about things closer to home here. Again, we're talking to Congressman Maxwell Frost from the Orlando area. Uh, as a way to combat the affordable housing crisis in Florida, especially with renters like myself, you've introduced the End Junk Fees for Renters Act, which would stop landlords from profiteering off their tenants with egregious fees. Um, obviously, you know, we've seen what happened just in terms of uh, tenants' rights here in Florida this past year in the legislative session where the few rights that tenants had went away. Uh, and I know you've had some issues as yourself trying to find housing there in Washington. So talk about this uh, piece of legislation. We're really excited about this. And, you know, our top three issue areas in this office are gun violence prevention. Um, Very personal to me. I'm a survivor of gun violence. It's the issue that got me involved in politics. Arts and culture. We know the arts and culture, hospitality, entertainment. That's all really the life and blood of the Central Florida economy. Um, And I'm a musician myself, so also very personal. And then housing and transportation, two issues that are not identical, but indivisible and very important that we focus on. When I knock doors, the top thing people tell me they want us to work on is housing. And so, you know, I want to make sure that we um, lead on housing in Congress, and we're also very involved here locally. The End Junk Fees for Renters Act is the first piece of legislation I've introduced uh, as it relates to housing, and it's going to be, you know, the first of many. Um, I believe that the way we solve this problem is through empowerment. Um, I do believe that empowering the, the, the market is important, right? And that includes we need to get rid of local exclusionary zoning laws. We need to ensure that we're incentivizing affordable housing. Uh, we need to end parking minimums, et cetera. But we also need to empower tenants and what and we need to empower tenants more now than ever, because what, uh, what we're what we've seen is, especially since covid tenants have lost a lot of power in the marketplace. And you said it right. The the affordable housing bill that was passed that had a lot of good things, but also had egregious things in it that was passed by the Florida State Legislature essentially preempts and takes away our ability as a community to be able to vote on issues related to local housing, um, things like rent stabilization. And you're right, Florida has some of the worst tenant protections in the entire country. And what we did have um, is now virtually doesn't exist. And so it's important that tenants have protection. Um, my first bill on this and junk fees for renters act does exactly what it sounds like. It ends junk fees for renters. And what's a junk fee? Well, a junk fee is something that you're being charged for that you really, that really shouldn't be an additional charge. And what I always like to say is, look, it's one thing to make a profit from something. And it's another thing to profiteer off of something. And no one should be profiteering off of housing, especially when we're in a housing crisis. What are some junk fees? Well, uh, you all have them on your bills, right? Uh, I have multiple people in my office who pay 100 to $150 extra in, um, a, as a part of their rent every month just to pay their rent online. Yes, we also found in our research that there are many landlords across the state of Florida that charge $60 every time a tenant sends a text, email, or or calls the landlord to, to talk about something or, or ask for something to be fixed. $60 every time. Uh, pet rent, which we all know about. Uh, you know, the pets don't work. Not sure the pet should be paying a rent, right? And different things like that. And essentially what we've seen is a lot of landlords will charge you for services that they actually already have to provide. And it's just a way of nickeling and, uh, nickel and diming our tenants. Um, and it's something that shouldn't happen. It's really about transparency here. Um, what we know and some, look, some folks have come up to me and said, Maxwell, how will this lower rent? You know, a lot of these landlords might just roll those costs off into the, you know, rent and make the rent higher. Okay. That's, you know, that's good too, because that means more transparency. The problem is you sign up, you know, for, let's say you get a $2,000 a month studio in downtown Orlando or whatever, and then you get engaged in the lease 
And then you get your first bill and whoa, there's $400 added on there that you didn't even know about from all these different fees that add up. And, you know, this is a this is a bill that wouldn't really impact our local mom and pop landlords because studies show that mom and pop landlords really don't charge junk fees. It really are, are these big corporations and these big companies that nickel and dime you um, to, to, to really make rent truly unaffordable for people. So we're excited about this bill. It's about transparency. It's about helping tenants make informed decisions. You know, when a tenant applies to rent somewhere, the landlord is going to know everything about you and you're going to know almost nothing about the landlord. So the bill would help add junk fees. It also helps with transparency in terms of um, it would make it so that way when you apply to an apartment, you have the right to know if the landlord's engaged in any lawsuits relating to other tenants. You'll have the right to know about any pest problems, all these things that, you know, we struggle to find out when we're renting. Um, this law would ensure that you have a right to know it. Again, we're speaking with Congressman Maxwell Frost right now here on WMNF 88.5 FM. Now, uh, Congressman Frost, I know you've been doing a lot of voter registration work and will continue to do so. I believe you're working on a concert this fall. Um, but as you see the statistics, uh, I don't care what uh, FTP chair Nikki Fried and local Democrats say, Florida does seem to be a red state right now. And it can only be mitigated by getting more people who believe in what you uh, believe in registered and voting here. Uh, so what's it going to take and what are you doing to try to get more uh, young people, people your age, to get more involved in the political process here in Florida? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question because we know right now across the country, young people are voting at higher numbers than they ever have in our country. This is we had the highest youth of their turnout in the last few cycles than ever in our country's history, which is great. Um, Florida um, isn't contributing a ton to those numbers nationwide. And so we have a lot of work to do. But we also have to be honest about the fact that we have a governor and a legislature that has been passing legislation that suppresses the right of, of voting for a lot of people. In fact, um, one of the latest bills that was signed into law this past legislative session really, really makes it very difficult for students to be able to vote um, on campus, I mean, it makes it illegal for you to pass out water in the lines where people are voting. Um, and it's unfortunate that we have a party that feels like getting less people to vote um, is going to be helpful to them politically. Um, but that aside, um, the Florida Democrats, we have to step it up, right? And I've been very critical of our state party um, for for a while, I think under the you know the previous leadership and the way it was run before, there was really no organizing work going on year round. I think we kind of rolled over and let the Republican Party of Florida really win last year. We didn't raise enough money. There was a ton of different factors that really uh, led up to the fact that you know last year our gov- you know, governor DeSantis won by eighteen points, and also, uh, I feel a lot a lot of Republicans moved to Florida in the two years between him running for president. Right during COVID, many many yes. Republicans moved to Florida from other places. A lot I just of like yes. to point that out. No, a lot of Republicans did move to Florida. However, I will say that even with the voter registration advantage they had, I mean, the eighteen points is a lot. And um, and so it doesn't account for all of that. But, you know, it's part of it. But there's a lot of states where a certain party has a voter registration advantage, but the margins are still very close. Um, and that's the fact in many, uh, many states around the country. And so there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. At the same time, a lot of Republicans have moved into the state. We've also seen a lot of Democrats move into the state, too, um, and a, a large uh, uh, growth population here in central Florida. So in terms of what we're doing Look, I mean, when I won my campaign, most members of Congress, you get elected, 
you your you know your staff goes down to just a finance director and you spend the next year year and a half just raising money um i have i still have an organizer on staff an organizing director we launched a program called democracy summer this past uh this summer where we hired 10 um organizing fellows between the ages of 17 and 22 young people and we paid them for the summer so that way they could spend half of their time learning how to organize a curriculum that we helped put together um that that they uh, took part in and they spent the other half of their time out on the streets registering people to vote getting people to sign the abortion ballot initiative petition helping with other candidates and engaging with the community year-round and i've committed that i'm actually going to be doing this program year-round we have a new set of fellows on right now why am i doing this why am i spending my campaign money on organizing right now when we're not even telling people to vote for me it's because it's a part of it's a bigger picture and we need more from our electeds as democrats nowadays it's not enough to just run for your office focus on yourself and just do your job this is an apparatus and you know i was just talking with someone about this yesterday that i got into this position and i've quickly realized the amazing work that we can do and the great impact we can have and you also quickly realize the limitations that exist with your position. And then you look around at, you know, city council, county commission, uh, mayors, other members of Congress, state legislature, all the positions that exist. And you see what the totality of power can look like. I'm a very aggressive person in terms of my politics. And I believe that as electeds, we need to be involved in not just getting ourselves elected, but building a bench so that way we can create the true change that we want. You know, my platform, I really believe in it. I can't do that alone, right? We're going to need a real apparatus here in Central Florida and across the state, and we'll have to take back the state to make it happen. And I'm going to be super involved in it. So we've been raising money, we've been knocking doors. Um, I'm actually planning a big voter registration concert for next year. We're going to meet people where they're at. We're never going to stop talking with our people because I think folks are fed up with only being spoken with by their politics, you know, spoken to by their politician or by their leaders three months before election day. You know, I've been going to a lot of churches and out in the community and people will say, wow, you know, usually we just see our folks election year, or the months leading up to it. And that's the problem. You uh, you mentioned a concert. You have a background in, in in organizing festivals. Am I right? You put together the Orlando Music Festival. Yeah, um, I I have a small music festival. My, my best friend and I put together um, called Bad Soul. Um, it's a very small one, but we donate 100 percent of the proceeds to local nonprofits. One called Food Angels. Um, but I've worked in music um, for a while. I went to the Osceola County School for the Arts, where I studied jazz drums. Uh, my father's a full time musician here in town, and I've actually at the same time as I've been working in politics, I've worked for. Uh, festivals like uh, Coachella, where I worked for five years. I've worked on different festivals across the country. I love music. I love live entertainment. Um, did, and did you so, ever make it over to GMF to Gasparilla Music Festival here in Tampa? I have never. I've never been over to Gasparilla. I need to go though. I yeah. really want to go at some point. You're missing out. I appreciate it, and thanks for your patience. I have a question for you about Jacksonville and the and the and the the racist uh, shooting up there. But first, I, I just wanted to ask you because we miss this opportunity a lot. I think, but uh, now you're still relatively fresh. Uh, uh, in, in a public position, what have you learned? What what surprised you uh, about Washington? The things that 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 we have no idea, we just aren't privy to. Even those of us who you know who do a lot of reading of the newspapers and so forth. Yeah, you know, for 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 me, the the biggest surprises are actually more operational than anything else. Right? We we all know about the political things we see marjorie taylor green we know there's craziness up there i mean look i was just on a 
um, I sit on the House Oversight Committee with Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all those folks. And I'm sitting there and I look over, she's talking and she's holding a big billboard of a picture of Hunter Biden naked, which, I mean, you know, it's just crazy. But we all see that. But what we don't see is behind the scenes, what, what does the operation of Congress look like? And it's not surprising to me that, you know, uh, bipartisanship is just harder and harder to come across because it's actually written into the way that Congress operates to not be bipartisan. What does that mean? So during my orientation, right, you win your election. The next day you get a letter in the mail that says, hey, congratulations, you need to be in D.C. in four days for your or five days for your orientation. See you there. So you go to orientation, you're meeting all these folks for the first time, new members of Congress from across the country, both Democrats and Republicans. We go through a two-week orientation um, course. The only time that you are with the co- your colleagues from the other side of the aisle is from the hours of like 8 a.m. to noon when is the class period, the period in which you're sitting in an auditorium and you're just listening to panels and you're taking notes. After that, all of the social events, all of the uh, events with organizations, all the other programming is separated by party. And I remember, you know, I was talking with one of my colleagues, Jared Moskowitz, about this. And we were saying what, you know, I feel like the best time to create relationships with people on the other side of the aisle is actually during orientation before you start going at each other in Congress on policy. And so it's not even there. Do you have the opportunity? You really have to go out of the way. Even when you get into Congress, you know, we sit on separate sides of the aisle in both committee and in the House of Representatives. That's actually not a thing in a lot of different state legislatures. Um, when we go to committee rooms, we sit on the opposite sides of the aisle. When we we have separate break rooms, uh, our cloak rooms, um, which can make sense for strategy purposes, but still it's separated. Even when you look, I remember, you know, we have these committee hearings, which are supposed to be collaborative hearings for to inform policy. But if you ever, and I encourage folks, Google, you know, what a congressional committee room looks like, and you will see a dais, which is like a desk, a long desk with members sitting on it. And you will see cameras and you will see lights shining on the members with an audience. And you know what it looks like? It looks like a show. <laughs> and I've produced a lot of shows. Yeah. So I can tell you the committee rooms are even made to look like a stage in a production because honestly, for the most part, that's what they are. You know, when I was in, when I was in South America, I was shocked. We walked into their committee rooms. It's not as like, you know, showy. In fact, every seat has a microphone in the audience so people can engage. It, was, it looked more like a, hey, let's get together and do collaborate. Some yeah, do some work versus let's sit on a stage and, you know, you know, go crazy to raise money online. So a lot of the, the things I've learned have to do with the operation because we all know about the, you know, we all know about the politics. So, there, you know, there's good coverage of that. But the operation is interesting. It doesn't it doesn't foster you know, a collaborative mindset. You have to go out of the way for that. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, as you know, was was jeered and booed this week at a prayer vigil uh, for three people killed uh, by a racist mass shooter in Jacksonville. And for many people, I think for a lot of people there in that crowd, there's a connection between this shooting and some of the uh, uh, some of the racist rhetoric that uh, that has been circulating uh, in this uh, crusade against wokeness. And in this push to uh, reduce the uh, African-American uh, history teaching in public schools and some other things. I'm wondering if you think that's a bridge too far, if, if, if laying this at the feet of uh, hardened talk or more racist talk, uh, this violent crime, uh, is that a stretch or are we, um, is there something here? 
No, it's I mean, it's not a stretch. I, I wouldn't say that, oh, it's just the governor's fault. Right. I mean, there's many different things here, um, but the governor's is a big part of it. And um, we, we've seen this across the entire state. Um, it's not, you know, unfortunately, what happened in Jacksonville obviously devastated me. It also didn't surprise me. Mm. In fact, I, I remember when these bills were being passed, we said time and time again, we said these bills will result in continuing to help um, and embrace this far-right fascist movement that's growing, that is based in white supremacy, um, and that really otherizes whole groups of marginalized communities. And it's going to lead to people getting hurt, and it's going to lead to death. And um, and we said that. We said it time and time and again. You know, when these Nazis uh, march on Disney and march here in Central Florida holding Ron DeSantis signs, we said... You know, this needs to be dealt with, not just a statement, not just a press conference, but actually come together and figuring out how do we make it so that way Nazis don't feel comfortable marching around Central Florida in broad daylight holding Ron DeSantis signs. And we got crickets from the governor when it came to real meaningful action on this. He has been embracing this far right movement that 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 the killer and the murderer belonged to. Mm. And so we look. I'm, I'm not he's going to sit here and say, oh, it's all the governor's fault. That's not what I'm saying. But he is a huge part, a big part of the rise and hate that we've seen come uh, out of Florida. And, you know, I've I don't know if we have, really we have enough time to really dive into this, but I encourage folks to check out. I did a ad hoc hearing in D.C. on the authoritarian problems that we're experiencing here in Florida. My staff provided a, I think it's over 18 page memo that details about the actions that the governor has taken and how it subverts democracy and how it's, a, it's an abuse of power and how it's fueling hate. And I'll tell you this, we intentionally did not talk about policy differences in that memo. It's not about Democrats versus Republican. It's about democracy versus fascism, democracy versus an authoritarian leader. And the authoritarian fascist playbook is very simple, and it's been the same. You manufacture a problem. You crown yourself the protagonist in the story, the hero in the story. You pick a specific marginalized group, and you say it's their fault. And then you say, give me the power, and I'll deal with it. And this is what the governor's done. I encourage people to look at uh, look at the receipts, look at the history here, whether it's been trans kids, whether it's been immigrants, uh, whether it's been black history. He's chosen things that maybe the majority of Floridians don't have direct connection to and so can easily otherize. And unfortunately, it will lead to people who decide to take it into their own hands. And in a state where, you know, you're passing laws that make it easier for people to get bring any gun any place anywhere. And at the same time, you're fueling hate against marginalized communities. You will have individuals who take it to heart and who go out and hunt black people at a dollar store. And that's what happened in Jacksonville. Congressman Maxwell Frost, we know you have to go. One quick question we could before you go, and that is, uh, we know, of course, you're considered the, the Gen Z president, uh, Gen Z candidate or congressional member. I want to ask you quickly about Gen Z voters and President Joe Biden, because it seems like a lot of Gen Z voters are not into him. A New York Times Siena poll taken earlier this month showed that only 4% of voters 18 to 29 strongly approved of uh, President Biden, just 36% overall. Uh, we've seen other studies, studies say that as well. What are your thoughts about the president and how he connects? with younger voters 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of work we need to do. I'll say in terms of the policies that the president has been championing, young people are on board with that, that we want to defeat the climate crisis, we want to end gun violence. Uh, let, me, uh, let me take a step back. I don't speak for all young people, but generally when we see this polling, this generation is the most progressive generation in the history of our country, wanting bold action on the issues that we care about. And um, and there'll be ebbs and flows. You know, we saw a few months ago, there's a poll that came out that showed young uh, support for the president surging. And then it came down a little bit and then it was surging. So there's a lot of work we need to do to ensure they know about the great things he's passed and how it directly connects to our future. But let's be honest, it's looking like this next uh, election year is going to be a, re a repeat of 2020. And I always like to joke that young people don't often like doing the same thing twice. Uh, and sometimes that can be discouraging for people, even seeing someone like Donald Trump again being elevated to that position. Um, and so there's a lot of work we need to do in just meeting young people where they're at. And what I've told the campaign and, and what we've expressed to the administration is let's keep talking about the future and what we believe in and making sure that young people see themselves as a part of that. You know, the president uh, doing this great work on student debt relief, we know that it's, you know, the Supreme Court struck it down. He Within 24 hours, he turned around and said, all right, here's the next plan. And so we've encouraged the president to move quickly on that next plan. And I think, you know, when he's successful on that, and as we continue to see good action on gun violence and climate, those numbers will go up. All right, Congressman Maxwell Frost from the Florida's 10th Congressional District in the Orlando area. Thanks so much for making time for us this morning on The Skinny here on WMNF. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, there is uh, Congressman Maxwell Frost, all of 26 years old, uh, making his mark in Washington, D.C. Uh, we talked about it there right at the end, but uh, I'd like to dwell on this for a second yeah. longer. And by the way, enjoy. Uh, I'd like to invite listeners to chime in on this because I'm curious what people think. If you'd like to talk about this, call us at 813-239-9663 or send an email to... Uh, DJ at WMNF.org. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was jeered and booed this week at a prayer vigil for those killed and wounded uh, by a racist uh, shooter in Jacksonville. We're going to play this clip. Well, thank you for doing this. I want to just say to the councilwoman, 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 I got you. Don't worry about it. We've already been looking uh, to identify funds to be able to help one Make sure there's adequate security for Edward Waters College. We are not going to allow these institutions to be targeted by people. We. Okay, listen, y'all. Let me let me tell you, we finna put parties aside, cause it ain't it ain't about parties today. A bullet don't know a party, so don't get me started. So for many, there's a connection between the views of the gunman who killed three black people at a Dollar General after first stopping at the campus of historically black Edwards Waters University and DeSantis's vehement crusades against wokeness and the teaching of African-American history in public schools. Um, if you remember, Mitch, uh, right out of the gate, DeSantis uh, sort of made some friends in the black community by pardoning the Groveland Four. Remember this? Yeah, was no, case? he did a lot of things in his first six months in office back in 2019 to show that he, you know, people, didn't, a lot of people did not know really that much about Ron DeSantis, right? He had been a uh, three-term congressman. Uh, he also did some environmental measures. He also talked, he made sure that uh, cannabis was allowed to be purchased or medical marijuana program, a flower program you could actually buy. So he 
definitely did several different measures that showed that he was uh, wanted to bend towards a centrist at least, if not if not Democrats. That's exactly right. And and pardoning the Groveland Four sent a message that um, you know that he was willing to listen to some long held complaints about mistreatment in the black community. Uh, as he moved, though, uh, increasingly to the right ahead of his run for president, um, it seems to me like he's been pushing an agenda that, that sort of cemented his status as a conservative rising star nationally, but locally has outraged many black voters, some of whom you heard in that clip. What policies are we talking about? Changing how slavery is taught in schools, first of all. Cutting funding for diversity and inclusion initiatives at, at universities across the state redistricting a black-led congressional district in northern Florida out of existence. Um, and it goes deeper than that. As Governor Mr. DeSantis sought to restrict enacting, uh, you remember early on, a popular referendum to restore voting rights for many felons. Um, as the George Floyd rallies and the Black Lives Matter rallies uh, kicked off in, in that summer, a few summers ago, he signed legislation that many civil rights activists said criminalized those types of protests. Uh, they made felonies out of those types of protests. Um, he also set up a new state police force to enforce election laws that uh, so far has arrested mostly black people in a one high profile sweep uh, that was widely televised. He removed two elected state attorneys from office. These were elected right. by the people. One of them was black. One of them was Andrew Warren, of course, here in Tampa. Um, and perhaps the biggest backlash, though, came uh, earlier this year when Florida education officials rejected an AP course on African-American studies. And if you remember, uh, this course um, was suggesting that people be, that students be taught that enslaved people develop skills from slavery and in some instances, which could be applied for their personal benefit. That line was widely criticized across the country and, uh, and it's had effects. Some black professional groups have even stopped holding conferences in the state of Florida. Um, while some black leaders have uh, condemned the state and encouraged black visitors not to come here. So it, the question remains, though, does all of this, does this policymaking that does have an edge on the right, does this policymaking give rise to this type of violence? Now, yeah, let me, let me interject right now because this has been a discussion this week. There was an AP article written that had a big, furious uh, reaction by conservatives who said uh, it was somehow uh, linking uh, the, de the, the shooting death directly to DeSantis' policies. And as you, we heard the congressman, uh, Frost, you talk about, uh, he certainly didn't want to make that direct link because you can't, right? I mean, you absolutely can't. Um, what folks will say was there was that racist shooting in Buffalo, New York a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and, you know, with the, nobody was blaming Governor Kathy Hochul at the time. Now, again, she had the policies that you just enumerated, Ben, uh, that have gone on that have, you know, definitely uh, had, had a furious reaction by uh, members of the black community or just liberals overall who think that uh, DeSantis has been really dangerous on this. So I think definitely it's something that is worthy of a conversation. And if people want to talk about that, 813-239-9663 can also uh, write us at DJ at WMNF.org. Um, there are some people who seem pretty clear about this, including Florida State Representative Angie Nixon, who said, quote, we must be clear. It was not just racially motivated. It was racist violence that has been perpetuated by rhetoric and policies designed to attack black people, period. Uh, we'll Jackson, say also, yeah, yeah uh, we've got some, uh, excuse me, people writing in right now. David writes in, uh, 
Uh, he's, he wanted to know, and he guesses when we had Maxwell Frost on, if he had read the book Rising Out of Hatred by Eli Saslo. Uh, David writes, it's about Derek Black's transformation from being born into one of the worst white supremacist families to renouncing his racist views while studying at New College of Florida. Uh, he, said, he writes, black po- folks, uh, black points out how folks like the Jackson, Jacksonville shooter are shamefully elevated to hero status on the Stormfront website. Of course, that's a very far-right website. He says, I think DeSantis is racist, sexist, homophobic, rhetoric inspires these hateful folks. So, it's fascinating how Derek Black plays into all this as well, because Derek Black was a student at the New College. Yeah, that's what we just said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and joined uh, as uh, sort of a clandestine member of the Stormfront. He was heir apparent to his father's legacy, which was his legacy of hate and white supremacy. He had built a website, Derek Black himself had, in fact, built a website for young white supremacists. And so he goes to New College and slowly he has changed. He is, uh, <laughs> he is, he meets people. He becomes friends with people who are different than him. And he realizes over a couple of years, he has this massive education and realizes that his racist ways had been wrong. Now, of course, New College is, uh, has been targeted by attacks. This uh, sort of liberal art school has, uh, has, has been remade. Uh, the, the board of trustees, have many of them have quit or been removed. Um, and it's been taken over by conservatives. So this is all playing out in a place that created Derek Black, that opened, that liberalized Derek Black, if you will. It's fascinating. Uh, okay, I thought we had a caller there. We don't right now. So yeah, so folks can, can wait on this. I, I want to bring up some other subject too, and I think okay, we have, I think we'll get the caller back right now. Or and okay, just, this is really. Let me just add this quote from as you take that call. Jackson Mayor Donna Deegan said, "I've heard some people say that some of the re- rhetoric that we hear doesn't really represent what's in people's hearts. It's just the game." It's just the political game. Those three people who lost their lives, that's not a game. Um, okay, let's see. We've got Joseph on the line here, I believe. Joseph, you're on WMNF. Can you hear him? I, uh, wait. I'm oh, sorry, Joseph, go ahead. Uh, am yeah. I on? Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, you are. on. Okay, so I listen to you folks regularly, and... I'm an independent, so and very proud of it, which means that I'm not committing to either of the major parties, but I look at the information that is available and facts, and then I determine what I prefer, which I think is the best. I don't think anybody should just be ultra-blindly committed to either side. So I I listen to you folks, and I love what I hear, but my concern is that you certainly are polarized. And I think that for any media to be polarized, either right or left, is dangerous because you color and paint extremely to the left, extremely so. And what you just said, for example, about um, DeSantis stating that that he said that uh, during the slavery period that blacks benefited because they... Uh, I guess, acquired some knowledge and skills. But, you know, that line was completely taken out of context if you listen to the full paragraph, okay? And, and you can understand we're trying to compress uh, what, what, what amounts to a big, long uh, topic into a, a short amount of time here. And also I you can understand, understand that what, part what, of that democratic yeah. process is, is having an open public forum to allow people like you to call in and criticize us in that, in that manner, and we're, we're absolutely open to that. Do you have a point to make? Yes. Do you consider yourself neutral and open to facts for you personally and for the uh, radio station that you are participating in? Do you consider yourself extreme leftist, neutral, 
Well, um, I, I don't know what's the point there. Do you have an issue with what it was just? That's I, I hate when I go to Trump rallies. People always ask me that too. Like, um, uh, Look, as journalists, we, we we try to play these things very close to the vest. We also try to keep a very open mind. Uh, I've been wrong so many times with. Uh, personally held opinions that I know now that I am wrong more often than I'm right. And so, therefore, I have an, a very open mind. And am I left? Certainly on some issues. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely on some issues. But I think what we try to do is just present accurate information because that's what we're concerned with, the truth and uh, solid, accurate information. And not trying to make people feel one way or the other, convince people to believe one thing or the other. Certainly don't believe what I believe. Okay, well, I just I heard a few minutes ago about the Biden polls and the congressman from Orlando um, uh, view of that, and I, I think that was a little bit of a, of a spin that he put on there, not a little, quite mm-hmm. a bit. A yeah, that's what Democrats do, man. I mean, Kathy Castor said the same thing when I brought it up to her a couple of weeks ago. If you were listening to the show, I, I try to hit these Democrats on that uh, listener. So yeah, try to do that. Can't help what they say. Yeah, right. Got yeah, another but call you didn't there. challenge what he said. You let it go as, you know, as, as fact. Okay, okay. Well, okay. all right. Appreciate, Appreciate your thoughts, uh, definitely. Okay, uh, okay Jason, thank you. So let's go to Joe in Lakeland. Joe, you're on the air. Wait, did I hit that right? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, sorry, Joe, you're there. Yes, come on, Joe. All right, he hung up. Okay, Mike in Tampa. Let's try you. Oh, I want to say that, by the way, uh, Pat Kemp, Commissioner Hillsborough County Commissioner Pat Kemp, will be on Art in Your Ear in the next hour on Joe Ellen's show, so stay tuned for that. Mike? Hey, BLM is a friggin' joke. That's all I got. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, let's see. We've got some other text messages coming in here. Um, trying to read these. Uh, and let's see. Let's see. I'm gonna, this is having a hard time with this. Um, Okay. This okay. This this person says the gentleman is correct. Saint DeSantis in the statement about black slavery was out of context. Uh, let us clean the voter uh, uh, rolls. There, I think I'm saying. Can't read that there. Uh, no, while you're reading through that, uh, Jim Cavanaugh on MSNBC pointed out this week that um, more people today are being killed by white nationalists than they were during the civil rights era. And that's a claim a lot of different media organizations have tried to run down. It's hard to back up. And the ADL Center for Extremism's 2022 annual report shows that figures from those earlier eras are really hard to come by. They seem to be undercounted. But this still drives home, uh, you know, a cogent point. Um, Hate crimes are up in large cities. This is uh, uh, not in dispute. Right-wing extremists are responsible for three in four politically motivated homicides. Among those killings, white supremacists are, are responsible for more than half of those. Um, so this is a group that, uh, you know, by statistics, uh, is more is uh, tends to be more violent. Uh, let's see. Bubba writes in. It's very disappointing that a shameless uh, mix of Nazis and grifters have taken over New College of Florida. Okay, uh, the other state universities need to be paying attention. To, uh, uh, believe me, they are uh, to what's happening at New College. Just go back to Joseph for a moment ago, uh, who said I, I should have challenged Congressman Frost. A couple things on that. One was we 
we were definitely pressed for time. We only were to have him to 1130. So I was just, I was lucky to get to squeeze that question in. But look, I mean, I wanted to ask him that question because I wanted to hear what he said. And you're right, Joseph. He gave us a party. Same thing happened to Kathy Castor. I try to ask these Democrats about Joe Biden because I think, Ben, I see these polls out there. I mean, they are what they are. Uh, vote, established Democrats are just not are going to give you the spin, though. It's, they are. And, and I, I'm not, a, you know, same thing with, with Republican when it comes to party line. Um, does this and, hamstring the, the party, though, that they can't have an honest conversation? Right. About I think it does, because the Joe fact Biden? of the matter is, um, OK, look, I've, I've, I have this weird notion. I've said this on the air that I somehow don't think it's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, which mm-hmm. there's no evidence to indicate that that will not be the case, by the way. So it's kind of. Uh, where am I? What am I thinking here? Only because I just feel history of politics, things that always seem like they're going to happen just don't always happen like that. And there's still a long time. Uh, we're still well. Now it's September, so we're getting a little closer towards the conventions so from next summer. Uh, Joe Biden. Uh, by the way, we should say Joe Biden's going to be in Florida tomorrow. He's going to be up in the uh, the Nature Coast, the Big Bend era, uh, uh, to visit the, uh, the watch the recovery efforts of Hurricane uh, Adalia. And uh, this is important for Biden, by the way, because he did not have a shining moment with the situation in Hawaii and Maui. If you might recall a week ago, week and a half ago, he was asked about it at one point and he said, uh, you know, he ultimately went out there, but he had said no comment. And the, the White House said, oh, he didn't hear the question. Well, that's the problem maybe, you know, that he didn't hear the, I, I don't know. I think that uh, it's very important for Joe Biden to show up. I think it's nice, by the way, we'll see if he meets with DeSantis. They've done that twice over these natural disasters back in Surfside in 21 and the last year in Fort Myers. Uh, so, Mitch, I wonder, having been a political observer for a long time, yeah. I wonder whether we're making too much about um, just in this age of like quick clip television, uh, uh, internet meme type stuff. I wonder if we're making too much about these old guys pausing. Are you <laughs> like Mitch McConnell? Like Mitch McConnell and like Joe Biden occasionally. Um, uh, is this a big deal that someone pauses for a moment before addressing, you know, that this sort of, I, I, well, uh, it, you know, it, it's, I think it's a bit of alarming because it's happened a couple of times now when it comes to this case of Senator Mitch McConnell, I think in the case of say California Senator Dianne Feinstein, it's a real issue because, mm-hmm. um, and I have a problem. I heard somebody on television this morning talking about the fact that, well, you know, we shouldn't have, and again, I, Nikki Haley's talking about, you should have these, uh, I don't know, mental tests, whatever. I mean, we're getting some kind of interesting, weird kind of conversations about this, age limits, term limits. Um, I just know this, Dianne Feinstein, when she ran for re-election in 2018, I believe it was, she was 84 then. And she was, so to me, it wasn't about age because she was still very competent. You know, she ran against a fellow Democrat, Kevin DeLeon. uh, They have an open uh, open primary system there uh, or, you know, Democrat ran against Democrat there. Uh, And so she... I don't think there's any that was much question about her competence where there is now. And I hear some people saying, well, just wait for the wait for let her allow her to run her term out, which is next year. I don't think she's doing a very good job of the state of Florida, or, excuse me, state of California right now, because I don't think, I mean, if you've seen her, you see her talk right now, I think it's different. Joe Biden, it's a little different. Um, and again, it's maybe the age is not so a factor, because I know 85-year-olds who are very got it together, but it's the cognition factor, the mental acuity, I think that is concerning some people. <clears throat> I guess I just mean uh, <clears throat> the cameras are always on. They're always running. Um, you're going to catch moments when uh, when someone is blank-faced. Yeah. This happens, right? And it happens not just to them. And I remember only a few weeks mm-hmm. ago this happening to someone, I think, uh, on a national television program. She, um, forgetting the context of this, but yeah. she got stunned and it became a viral meme because she couldn't answer a question that had right. been asked of her. Right. 
I'm wondering if we're just making too much about it in this day and age where those clips are accessible on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, I get where you're coming from. And certainly people freeze up all the time. I mean, you know, like short-term memory loss, man. It's a terrible thing. Uh, Let's go to John in in, uh, Port Ritchie. John, uh, what's your get me? Sure. John, you're on the air. Hey, thanks for the show, guys. Um, About bias. I, I mean, I understand that there's bias in the media and you have to realize that there's bias in the media. And personally, I don't see anything wrong with the bias in the media because you know where they're coming from. But there's a difference between like when when you as a reporter and people say, well, I'm neutral. I don't think anybody can be neutral because you, you bring to your point of view your perspective from your life experience. And you always have a an outlook based on your own perspective, which makes you biased. But anyways, so going back to like news news people. There are some news people that can remain somewhat neutral and give you just the facts. But there's also, when you look at that, well, what stories do they choose to cover? Well, then you bring in the bias. Right. What what really bothers me, and I see this on the right-wing media, is there's not bias. There's just outright lying. I mean, they're telling their listeners that Joe Biden said in front of uh, the American Foreign Council that, he was going to withhold that billion dollars if they didn't fire that prosecutor. But then he said, well, don't ask me, don't ask, go ask Obama. And then that makes me wonder, why would Obama want uh, to stop an investigation in a Hunter Biden son and risk um, uh, um, charges of coercion? Why would he do that? Why would the International Monetary Fund do that? Why would the European Union do that? Why would Republican senators like Bob Corker do that? Go back and read the transcripts from 2014. There's a there's a Senate hearing where they talk about the Americans withholding that billion dollars. That was American foreign policy. They won't state that on, on conservative media. They just play the clip, spin it to what they want. That's not bias. That's just plain lying. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Thank I don't. I, <clears throat> um, getting some interesting uh, in, in comments. I actually don't even understand some of these text message comments. Now, Ben, I think this might be directed towards you. I want to make sure to read oh, this. This is again the super small print. I have a hard time looking at uh, the, the, the the person who writes this says, "Why does he say quote these are the facts and then rattle on with his opinions?" Um, the fact that anyway. It, 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 uh, I can't really have a hard time reading that. Let's, we got another caller here. Eleven fifty-six. We have like about four minutes left to go here in the program. Bernard in Saint Petersburg. Yes, yes. I'm listening to you guys, and one of you guys said that what Mitch did is just a pause. Are, are, are you? Do you really think that was just a pause? The last two times that the camera caught him, even after the lady. Go up to him, and he just standing there. Right, we're, we're talking about Mitch McConnell here. Yeah, yeah. That's not a pause. Right, right, right. I just, I, I, my only, my only question is: Are we making too much out of that? Does this, does well, this? What, what, what's that caller? What do you, yeah. what do you think, caller? Sir, Bernard, Bernard, are you there? <laughs> so okay, that's the went. question. Is, yeah. is, it, is it, does this suggest that one can't lead? That one uh, uh, is is, yeah. is limited in terms of cognitive ability? Well, I guess to, like, in the case of McConnell, right? He had a concussion uh, a few months ago, and then this has been the second uh, incident on video where he just totally froze. So there does seem to be ha- something happening there. And I heard Joe Biden actually talk about this and really say, oh, I talked to Mitch last night and it's like, he's just having a little rough time, but he'll be good. These guys rallying around each other, you know, um, 
I do think, again, McConnell, Republicans have to figure out, because he is the majority leader, and it's a very important position, that's one of the most important positions in Washington, D.C., um, what, what they want to do with him. And I, I was reading in Politico this morning, there's a lot of discussion behind the scenes, and they're not going to say this out front. They're going to be right behind Mitch, but uh, we'll see what happens with that because of their concerns that maybe there's that's going to happen again. You know, that's just a thing, a real thing. So when you uh, when you uh, think about uh, this next election and Joe Biden is not running, who who is? Oh, in well, your, uh, in your well my thing is this: I we hear from Democrats like, oh, the, the Democrats don't have anybody else. They're they're desperate. I think there's a lot of good candidates. They're all waiting in the wings. They don't want to be uh, uh, impolite. I mean, I'm talking about some of these governors, whether it's uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Gavin Newsom in California, Jared Paulson in Colorado, uh, J.B. Pritzker in Illinois, um, and some of the people who ran in 2020, Cory Booker, New Jersey Senator, uh, Claude Bouchard. Again, most of these people are not going to show any indication that uh, – Newsom has, right? Newsom has to be debating Ron DeSantis in a couple of months, which there was an article, I think, the other day saying, like, the White House is going a little bit, like, feeling a little funny about this now because, uh, again, nobody's going to come out. Now, again, we should also say Vice President Kamala Harris is there, and the perception is, oh, well, her poll numbers are horrible. Um, I don't know. I, I saw her in Orlando a couple weeks ago. I thought she was pretty uh, decent up there on the stage, but that's not, that's not she, a popular thing to say, by the way. Is she as public-facing as you thought she would be uh, Look, she ago. has been criticized for, like, being speaking clearly. She's been criticized for a lot of different things, but I think that she, uh, I think the perception is against, is too much against her. That's the problem with the White House is that, um, and you hear this with Haley, it's like, we want to run against Kamala Harris because Joe Biden's going to be 82 when he's elect, if he's reelected, he'll be 86 at the end of his term. He will be too old. He's not going to be able to make it. I think even Haley even said like he'll, he'll die before he even makes it to the end of the second term. So this whole thing about age is definitely a real thing uh, going up there. Okay, we've got about a, a minute and a half left to go here. Simon writes, John Fetterman. Hey, John Fetterman, good point. The senator from Pennsylvania, remember, had the, uh, the stroke and, uh, and he's had some very painful uh, moments on stage. Uh, and yet it became a party thing at the end. Democrats rallied around him. Then he went to the hospital for depression recently. So he's got a lot of different issues going around. And I, and I think that's a good point. Um, is he competent enough? The voters had it. Voter, in that case, the voters had a chance in front of them to decide that, right? Because that was in real time. That was in November. Uh, he, he had that stroke back in, I think, May. Uh, all right. We were almost out of time here. Well, Ben, we definitely got a little bit of a, some interest here from the listeners the last minute, couple of minutes of the program. Yeah, we sure did. Thanks to uh, Representative Maxwell Frost, uh, all of 26 years old, for joining yeah, us. Yeah, it's a big coup for us. We really appreciate that, getting on the program. Uh, next week, want to say, I know we're sure what we're doing. I will not be here because the Florida Supreme Court, uh, Joe Allen, I guess, and I did say it, Joe, and I said Pat Kemp's coming on your program. Joe Allen is coming up at 12.06. Yeah, anyway, the Florida Supreme Court is meeting about the abortion law next week, next Friday. I have to be up there for that for my job. But uh, nevertheless... Everybody, I hope you all made it through this, the hurricane okay. We want to thank everybody. We want to thank Skip Sassy for our engineer, Irene, for taking phone calls. With Ben Montgomery, I'm Mitch Perry. You're listening to WMNF 88.5 FM in Tampa.